another. Father, I pray this morning that faith in the Lord Jesus would rise up in our hearts. And Lord, those of us who are believers in Christ, that our faith would indeed lift us and carry us and strengthen and encourage us. And Father, for those this morning that have not yet decided for the Lord Jesus, I pray that faith would well up in their hearts this morning. And Lord, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived and died and gave himself for us. And Lord, as we seek to live a life that is pleasing and honorable to you, we need a growing faith, a rich faith. And so I pray, Father, that you'd stir that in our hearts. And uh, Father, when you do, we'll honor you and give you the glory for all that you do and for everything that you are. So God, come and meet with us as our prayer, and we'll give the honor and the praise to Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Take your Bibles. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This morning we are in uh, in our little road trip series. We're in Hollywood, California. Don't know if you've ever been there. It's quite an interesting place. Uh, I hadn't spent long there, a couple hours one afternoon. But an interesting place. There's probably some cities more famous than Hollywood, but I don't think there's a sidewalk anywhere that is more famous than Hollywood Walk of Fame. To be honored uh, with a star on Hollywood sidewalk is, is, uh, is as coveted and important and significant as any of the entertainment industry's uh, awards. I mean, they compare it to an Oscar, an Emmy, a, a Grammy, a Golden Mike, or a Tony, whatever the award is. It's just as important or maybe more so to get your name on the sidewalk. And so, so it's quite an interesting place. I... Uh, I learned that it began as a sleepy little agriculture center, probably a little cow town outside of L.A. back in the mid-1800s. They had some orange groves and different things. Well, in 1903, they incorporated it as a municipality. And then in 1910, a company had moved out from the east and began to film and make movies in L.A., and they weren't well-received. They, I don't know what happened. They didn't... Uh, find their comfort level in L.A. So they moved about five miles north and west to this little place. It wasn't even called Hollywood at the time. And they began to make movies in 1910. In 1911, they opened the first official movie studio in Hollywood. And as the old saying goes, the rest is history. And Hollywood has become the centerpiece of uh, the cinema, the American cinema. It's, it's kind of the most popular place. Uh, for movies, Wikipedia says it this way, due to its fame and cultural identity as the historical center of movie studios and movie stars, the word Hollywood is often used as a metonym for American cinema. And so what it boils down to is Hollywood has capitalized on an interesting phenomena that happens in, in life. Every little boy wants to be the hero. Every little boy that grows up, he wants to be the hero. And every little girl, she wants to be the princess that is rescued by the prince. And as you know, the saying goes, they live happily ever after. And so Hollywood has figured that out. And what they figured out how to do is how to design and write a story and present a story in a way that's appealing to people. My friend Steve Andrews notes that one reason 
uh, the movie industry is so powerful and effective is that they've learned how to synergistically, I guess is the right word, combine different art forms into one product. I mean, they take literature, they take art and drama and painting and set designs and cinematography and science and all kinds of modern technology, and they weave it all together to tell a story, and they know how to tell it very, very well. Few, if any of us, don't enjoy sitting down and watching a good movie because we all like a story. We, in fact, we love a story. And Jesus, who is a master communicator, think about this. Way back before Hollywood, way back before movies, way back before electricity, he understood that people love a story. When you read the Gospels, did you know that there are 30, I think, 37 different parables which are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Now, why would Jesus go to such great lengths? Why would he uh, spend so much time weaving his principles that he wanted us to know into a story? Because he knows us, and he knows that we all like a good story. Some people like to tell it. Some people like to read it. And some people like to watch it. But we all like it. I mean, we, we do. I, I love, I enjoy watching them. I love to read them. I, I've got a stack of books at home. I probably told you this. I've got a, a, a box of Westerns by Louis L'Amour, probably every one he ever wrote, maybe missing a couple. And I've read most of them two or three times. I can look at the back cover and I can tell you what's, what's going to happen in the story and who the guy's name is and where he's going to get shot. But I still... We'll go on vacation a couple of weeks. We go to the beach. You know what I'll do? I'll sit down with a couple of these books and I'll read the story because I just like a story. Just like many of you enjoy a story. And yesterday as a family, it was kind of our movie day and the girls had picked out Swiss Family Robinson. Anybody, anybody remember that? I checked on this last night. It was filmed in 1960. Man, I thought I was old. I can't believe it said, oh, but we watched this Swiss Family Robinson. And, you know, and it's kind of a neat story. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. None of those guys, I don't think the guys would have made it as actors today because they're not, they're not uh, buff enough. But anyway, we're watching this story, and I'm kind of watching it as a critic. But here's what was kind of interesting is, uh, you know, I would look at this, and I would make a comment to my wife. But they, they get to walking through this swamp, and here they are in the swamp. They're wading through the water, and they're holding their clothes up. And the big snake comes and gets a hold of them. You know, and they wrestle it, and they fight it, and they wrestle it a minute, and they try to cut its head off, and they can't. And in a minute, the snake just gets tired and swims away. I'm thinking, that really isn't how it happens. Right? But... But the danger, you know, we love that story, but here's the danger about Hollywood. It's make-believe. Hollywood is glitz and glamour, but it's make-believe. It's, it's makeup artists. It's, it's hair specialists. It's airbrushing. It's make-believe. It tells, it tells us a great story and we see these people and we think these people have a great life and they pretend to have a great life and they got money and they got fame and they got fortune. But when you look at their life, it's not real. It's just not real. You can get, you read about the lives of some of these people and it's just amazing how they can have everything life has to offer except happiness and contentment. And so I, I just say all that to say that 
We love a story and we love Hollywood, but we need to understand that it's make-believe. It is not the whole, that's not really the whole truth. It's not really the way it happens. And it reminds me of Satan because he paints a nice picture. He tells a good story. And he says, this or this or this. And he wants you to buy or he wants me to buy in. And so let's read about the enemy. And then I want to share some thoughts with you on how you can write your own story. All right. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at three verses. I'm not there, so I'll get there. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 13. By the way, let me set this up. I'll do it now. Uh, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. Uh, second letter he's written to them. Corinth was an interesting church. They were pretty well off. They were pretty arrogant. They were pretty um, worldly. Had a lot of things going, a lot of issues. And um, so he writes to them and he gives them a bunch of instructions. But one of the things that he points out is they have a lot of false teachers. I don't know how many, but a number of false teachers. And they would come and they would preach kind of a false gospel. And so he writes to him, and listen to what he says, verse 13. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Interesting word, masquerading. Now listen to this. No wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of life. It is not surprising then that his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. What I want us to do this morning, I don't really want to focus on the false prophecy and all the false teaching that was going on. Now, we could do a message. We could talk about how in our culture, uh, in some churches, in some places, there is a false gospel out there. But what I want us to focus on this morning is verse 14, where it says, No wonder Satan masquerades as an angel of light. But one of the unique things about Satan is that the word masquerade is from a, a, a interesting Greek word, metaschematizo, but uh, that word means, um, means to masquerade, to disguise, pretend, transform, fashion, or to change one's outward appearance. And so Satan has this desire to be like Jesus, and because he does, he tries to mimic or counterfeit what Christ is. And so the Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world. And so Satan masquerades as an angel of light. The Bible says that Jesus is the king of kings. Job writes in in 41:34 of his book that Satan is the king of the proud. Jesus is the prince of peace. The Bible says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And if you, and almost down the line, everything Jesus is, Satan counterfeits because he wants to be. Even if, if you look at end time prophecy, there is a, there is a, there's the Antichrist, there's the false prophet. I mean, because he wants to counterfeit everything that Jesus is. He masquerades as an angel of light. And so he pretends and he masquerades. And so what's interesting about our text, and in writing about these false preachers or these false prophets, Paul teaches us a principle. And that is that Satan, in masquerading or pretending or counterfeiting, what he can do is he can use other people 
or use people to do his bidding. He's using false prophets to conduct his business. And that's extremely important for us in the Christian community. We need to understand that Satan uses people. And if we're not careful, he'll use us. I mean, imagine if I'm not careful, he could have, and if I don't stay true to the scriptures, he could have me teaching a false gospel. He could use me if I'm not aware. And if you're a teacher and you're not aware, he could use you. If you're just an everyday guy or an everyday girl and you're not aware, Satan can use you to do his bidding. That's what he does. He uses people. He masquerades as an angel of light. It sounds right. It looks right. Sometimes it feels right, maybe even smells right, but it's not right. And so we need to exercise care because we have an enemy that masquerades that way. I want to look at a, a story that you know very well. If you take your Bibles, turn over to... Genesis chapter 3, that's really easy. Go all the way to the front and then turn right. It's right there, Genesis chapter 3. Well, that's easy for us to find because I know, here's what I want us to understand. Let me say this before I get there. What, what the enemy is so good at is he's good at appealing to our emotion. If he can appeal to our emotion, then he can influence us negatively. And that's really where Hollywood uh, has become. They're very effective. If you watch a story, they have they move it to its climax and they move it to its com- conclusion. And they're very good at appealing to our emotion. And when they get us emotionally connected, they can say this is right when we know it's really wrong. And they can say this is right... They can say about what's right that it's, that it's wrong. It, emotion, when we, when our emotions get stirred, we can't see clearly. And so oftentimes what Hollywood does is they portray a story and they move you toward a climax, but they're appealing to your emotion. So what's wrong, you will think is right. Now I can give you a number of examples. Let me just give you one. Um, a couple of years ago, the new movie Titanic came out, and I thought, well, that's a historical, that's a safe movie. So we go off to the movie to see Titanic, and it's a great story. The peasant boy meets the rich girl. They know one another for a day. They fall in love, and the movie, and it's so neat and ushy gushy and he fall in love, falls in love with the girl and the girl falls in love with the guy. And before we know it, in a day, they're making out or they're in love. They're making love. Well, actually, they're committing adultery or, or fornication. But in the movie, it just seems like that's the right thing to do. But the reality is that it's wrong. And Hollywood understands how to do that. And, and the reason they do is we have an enemy who masquerades as an angel of light and he speaks into our life and he influences our life. And if he can appeal to our emotions, he can take what is wrong and twist it. And we think, man, that's right. So how does he do that? Let's look at how he does that. I'll give you a couple of examples. But notice in Genesis chapter 3, he comes to, by the way, it says the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Why? Because he, he's a masquerader. He knows how to transform himself. He knows how to disguise himself. But it says, he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So the first way the enemy affects you and the first way he affects me is he questions God's word. He calls into question God's word. He he said, is this what God really said? Now, we live in a culture where absolute truth by the generations behind me, absolute truth is, well, nobody believes in it. I mean, the, the most, most kids under or, uh, tw- or most people 29 and under question, is there really absolute truth? Satan has brought in, there's a thing called relativism, which means that every, and I'll give you the short version, everything's just kind of relative to you, that, you know, what's true for you uh, might not be true for me, and what's true for me might not be for you, and it's just called relativism, and it started years ago, but most people just say, well, you know, there's, there's just, there's really no such thing as absolute truth, but scripture says there is absolute truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But what's happened in our culture is we've suppressed the truth. Romans 1 says that that we have suppressed the truth, that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so what Satan does is he causes us to question God's word. Is there really truth? And that is where, that's where he got Eve. That's the danger. And that often happens in our culture. There's, there's a couple cultural issues that are, that are hot button issues today. Uh, probably the biggest one is, um, is the issue of same sex marriage. And it is such, I mean, that is a cultural hot button. You got, you got churches on two different sides of the aisles. You got uh, political parties on different sides of the aisles. You got uh, generations on different sides of the aisles. And people say this and people say that. And, you know, and there's, well, you know, if God made people that way, then that's kind of the way it should be. And then you, we even have a president who's quoting scripture to justify, you know, he says, well, you know, you want to do unto others as, as they would do unto you. And so there, there's this big cultural issue. And what Satan's done is he's caused people to question the validity. You know, d- does God's word, what God spoke long ago, does it really apply today? And so what he's done is he's called people or caused people to question the validity of the word. But when you understand truth, listen. God's word is true. It's as true today as it was yesterday. And God's word will be as true tomorrow, tomorrow as it is today. And so don't buy into the idea that, well, it's just not the same. So, so he causes people to question. Uh, another cultural issue is, um, is sex before marriage. I, I understand that more than 50% of couples today cohabitate, believe in, and one of the philosophies, according to the research, is that people think, well, I will try before I buy. I will try before I get married. And, I mean, thinking, well, that'll help. But the research says that two out of three first-time marriages that cohabitate end in divorce versus about less than one out of two Non-marriage, so it really doesn't work. But Satan says, eh, if you're going to get married anyway, it's okay. And teenagers, let me encourage you. Don't buy in to that lie. 
Satan's going to tell you. He's going to say, well, you know, if, you, if you're going to... And he creates this doubt. Don't buy into it. Okay? It is just... It is not a safe thing to do. So what he does is he causes us to question God's Word. Secondly, not only did he cause Eve to question... Look at verse 4. She tells him, uh, God said that I'm going to touch it or, or I will die. And Satan says, you won't die. And so he goes from questioning God's word and then he denies God's word. He just doesn't tell them the truth. And when it comes to temptation, Satan's going to waltz into our life, your life and my life, and he's not going to tell us the truth. He, he, he may tell us part truth. But when he said you will not surely die, it was a lie. What, ha- what happened when Eve ate the fruit? Spiritually, she died at that moment. What happened to Adam when he ate the fruit? Spiritually, he died at that moment. The minute God was in the garden, they realized they were guilty. The minute God walked in the garden, they realized that they were filled with shame. The minute God walked in the garden, they knew something had happened. Why? Because they died. Spiritually, they died. Satan is always going to tell us, a lie. Now, it might not be an obvious lie. It might be a sinister, deceptive. In fact, it will be a sinister and deceptive. But it's going to be a lie. He never talks about the consequences. Have you ever noticed that? How the enemy doesn't talk about the consequences? Often Hollywood doesn't communicate the consequences. Now, many of you don't uh, can't go back that far, but... When I, way back when I was little, James Bond was, was, was a hero. And then they've gone through about four or five different actors, James Bond. In, in every James Bond movie, he always winds up with a woman outside of marriage. They're always together. They're always sexually involved. And there's never any consequences. They never tell us about the, the woman that gets hurt because she's been used and abused. They never tell us that. Seldom. Seldom do you see the consequences of our choices portrayed in Hollywood. Sometimes, but not often. I mean, they just, they just don't tell us the whole truth. It's make-believe. It's pretend. It, it says it's this, but in reality, it's something else. And, and that's what the enemy does. He tells us a lie. He Deceives us. And then not only when he denies the word, what he does is he denies the consequences. And that's where the danger is. I mean, think about this in in so many different areas. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a sports guy. I love to watch football and all the things on TV. But think about the commercials. I was thinking about this this morning. I've never seen a Bud Light commercial that had a warning that said, one out of 15 of you are going to be an addict. You're going to be addicted. I've never seen that. I've never seen a Bud Light commercial that said, that showed a man who's spent his rest of his life as a convicted felon because of manslaughter, because he driving under the influence, killed somebody. Screwed up his whole life and a family's whole life. I've never seen him say that. I've never seen a Bud Light commercial where they said or showed a 18, 19 year old girl who, because she was out having fun, was molested or date raped. Never seen that. 
Satan doesn't tell us that. By the way, just some statistics. 2009, according to the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, in 2009, 97,000 students between the ages of 18 and 24 were victims of sexual assault or date rape. Think about that. 97,000 people aged 18 to 24 sexually assaulted as a result of alcohol. That doesn't count 17 and under. Doesn't count 25 and over. You ever seen an alcohol commercial that said that? No. You know why? Because we live in a land of make-believe. Satan doesn't want us to know the truth. Satan wants to communicate a lie. He denies God's word. He questions God's word. And then ultimately, he substitutes it for a lie. That's what he did with Adam and Eve, notice verse 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He said to Eve, said, You're going to be like God. He tried to substitute that. Well, she was like God in that she knew she messed up. She knew she had done wrong. But she didn't become like God. Adam didn't become like God. On the contrary, instead of living forever, death came into their life. Instead of being perfect like God, they became sinners. And so he always questions, denies, and substitutes. So the question then is, if if we're going to avoid this deception, what do we need to do? What is it that we need to do? How do we make the right decision in the land of make-believe? How is it that you can have spiritual success? How can you write your story so that it's an epic and when you're done with your story at the end of your life, that, that it's what you want it to be. How do we do that? Well, we've got to avoid deception. And the Bible says that, the Bible says a great deal about deception. And so we need to avoid it. Well, there's the, the principle or the practical thing to do is, is, is we got to learn to deal with God's word appropriately. If you turn to Joshua chapter one, Joshua chapter one, I'm sure one verse. You're familiar with it, but I really want you to look at this because it's, if you want a prescription for how to write your story well, if you want a prescription for how to be successful in your life, here it is, right out of God's Word. Joshua 1, verse 8 says this. It says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Uh, the New Living Translation says it this way. It says, study this book of instruction continually, meditate on it day and night, so you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. And so, just three practical things that you need to be able to do if you're going to write a good story and if your life's going to be successful. Number one is you've got to learn the truth or you've got to learn God's Word. You've got to know what it says. You got to learn it. There's no substitute for you learning and knowing uh, what the Word of God says. I was at the softball. We were at the tournament last weekend, and um, girls were warming up, getting ready for the first game, and and uh, got in a conversation with the lady. And somehow or another, I said something about we said something about seminary, and she said, "Oh, by the way, if you went to seminary, let me ask you about this book." And she asked me about this book title, and she said, "Is it good or bad?" Well, I didn't know about the book. So I Googled it and I read who the author was and I read the topic and I said, well, it's bad. 
It's probably not good. And, and then and our, as our conversation unfolded, we talked about how do you know if something's good or bad? And we talked about the issue of counterfeiting. And, you know, if someone, uh, if the banking industry wants to teach their employees how to recognize counterfeit bills, do you know what they do? They don't teach them all the different kinds of counterfeits. They teach them what the real things look like. And so they spend their time in training, touching, feeling, counting, looking at real money. And their premise is, if you know what's real, you'll always recognize what's counterfeit. And so, men and women, ladies and gentlemen, listen, listen. If you want to know what's counterfeit, then you need to know what's true. So you got to learn God's word. You got to learn God's word. By the way, you know what the lady said to me at the end of her conversation? She said, you know, if I have to ask about the book, I probably shouldn't read it anyway, should I? And I said, that's right. Isn't that true? If we have to ask for permission, we probably shouldn't do it, right? Isn't that right? Your kids come up to you. And, and they, you know, they got a sheepish look on their face and they say, you know, dad, can I? They know they shouldn't. They just want somebody to tell them. Well, we need to do that. So we need to learn the truth. But secondly, we need to love the word of God and or love the truth of God. He says we need to meditate on it day and night. And uh, I, I don't know if you know, to meditate means uh, the best picture I know is like a cow chew and a cud. Uh, when I was in uh, college, we dealt with this, talked about it a lot. Um, and I wanted to, has anybody, anybody seen the cow chewing the cud? Did you know, did you know you can get, a, there's an online video on YouTube that you can get on YouTube and you can see a picture of a cow chewing the cud. You ought to check this out. There is an Angus cow. There's a one minute video and all it is, it shows about this much of the cow going. I, I, I'm not making that up. You get, you Google it this afternoon, I promise. In about 35 seconds, it goes, and then she starts up again, chewing a cut. And so I, I almost showed you that, but I thought that would be a poor rendition of Hollywood. So I decided not to. But when you, when you talk about meditating on the scriptures, it's like a cow chewing the cud. What the cow does is it, it ingests the grass or the hay, and then it coughs it up and it chews on it, it gnaws on it to get everything out of it that it can possibly get. Now, I know you're thinking, man, preacher, I, I, don't, I don't do this meditating thing. I don't, I'm not into the meditating thing. But if you're going to know and love God's Word, you've got to meditate on it. And so you've got to know it. To be able to chew it and to gnaw on it, to think about it, you've got to know it. And I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't know how to meditate. Sure you do. Have you ever gotten an argument with your, maybe with your spouse or maybe with a friend or in a discussion? We shouldn't use the term argument. And, and you didn't know what to say and they caught you off guard and you, you walk away from the conversation. You go get in your car and half, and you're driving home and halfway home you go, man, I wish I'd have thought of that. I should have said this. And when you think of it, you replay that conversation in your mind and you go back and you tell them off, right? Has that ever, you, you've done that, hadn't you? You go, man, I would have said that. I wish I would have thought. And we replay that over and over and over. I, I call it mental gymnastics, but that's, that's meditating. 
It's replaying, going over it, over and over and over. If you want God's Word in your life, you've got to be able to, to have it in your heart so you can think about it over and over and over. And that's what it means to love the Word. It's not some touchy-feely thing. I love my Bible and I want to be with it. No, it's, it's, it's meditating, thinking about dwelling on the Word of God. But you know, a lot of us, we learn the Word and, and some of us, we, we, lo- you know, we love it and we meditate on it. But at the end of the day, if that's all we do, it really doesn't matter. I mean, a lot of us go to Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. But our life hadn't changed. Notice back to Joshua 1.8. This is the most important part of the verse. It says, meditate on it day and night. Now, look at this phrase. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. We've got to learn it. We've got to love it. But at the end of the day, we've got to live it. So let me ask you this question. Do you live God's Word? The Word that you know, the Word that you studied, the Word that's been shown to you, taught to you, shared with you, do you live it? That's, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much I know. It doesn't matter how much I meditate. On it, what matters is how much do I do of what it says? How much of it do I apply to my life? How much do you? Because look what happens at the end of the verse. When you are careful to do everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. I don't know anybody that doesn't want to prosper. I don't know anybody that doesn't want to succeed. If you want if you want your story to be a story of success, if you want your story when it's finally written to be an epic, if you want to be able to, as Hollywood would say, live happily in the ever after, you need to learn his word. You need to love it, but ultimately you need to live it out in your life. And if you'll do that, you'll prosper. If you'll do that, you'll be able to tell what's make-believe and what's real. And if you want your story to be great, you've got to learn what's real and you've got to live it. Let's pray together. Fathers, we're praying over the auditorium this morning. Lord, I, I want to, first of all, pray for those who maybe came today and they're not yet followers of Christ. They, they came with a friend or maybe they just came in or they came with their family. And they've not yet decided to uh, follow after Christ. Maybe they're not quite sure, is there really absolute truth? And if there is truth, is Jesus the truth? And God, I just want to pray for them this morning. And I pray that they would realize and recognize that indeed there is an absolute truth. And that Jesus is the truth. And that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And that he's the real thing, not the counterfeit. God, I would pray this morning that they would decide that they want to follow after the one who's the real thing. So God, I pray this morning for each person that doesn't yet know you, that that you'd have your way in their life. God, even in the next few moments, that they would decide to surrender their life to the truth, to Jesus Christ. God, that they would decide today to place their faith and trust in Him. They would decide today to to repent of their way of living and follow after.
the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that's my hope and my prayer for every person here who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. And then, Father, I, I want to pray this morning for those of us who are Christ followers. Many of us here say, yes, I follow Jesus. Many of us here, we're learning your word. God, we're writing our story, and as part of our story, we're, we're uh, learning your word, and, and in some ways, we're loving it. But God, I pray for us this morning that, that we would make a commitment to live your word. God, imagine what could happen in my family. Imagine what could happen in our families, in our marriages, in our relationship with our parents and our kids, in our community, if we were careful to do all that's written in your law. God, imagine what could happen if your people who are called by your name would live by your word. And God, as we're praying all over the auditorium, my hope is for each of us as Christ followers, we would decide today that we want to live happily in the ever after. And if we want to live happily in the ever after, we need to live your word today. We need to stand for what's right Because Father, right's right if nobody's doing it. Father, wrong is wrong if everyone's doing it. And God, I would just pray this morning that you would have your will and your way in every person's life. Every person in the room, that you'd have your way in their life and in their heart. And God, when you do, we'll honor you and we'll give you the glory for that. So God, come and meet with us. Speak into our life. Father, as we prepare to receive our offering this morning, I pray that as we bring our offering and as we bring our gifts, Lord, they would be love gifts to you. Lord, we would give out of a generous heart. Father, we'd give out of a heart that's been changed forever and forever. And so, God, take what we bring, use it to tell the story of Jesus, not only here, but all over our valley all over Texas and all over the United States and to the ends of the earth. Use what we bring, Father, for your glory and your honor. And I ask it in Jesus' awesome and precious name. Amen.